copy of the scriptures to Acts chapter 7. In case you're visiting, we have been uh, moving our way through the book of Acts. And so uh, we have paused here at chapter 7. Stephen was one of the uh, early church members and uh, was one of the first deacons. He was out preaching and uh, doing some wonderful things, um, healing people in the name of Christ. And he was called before the religious leaders to give an account. In fact, he was charged with uh, religious heresy. And so he stood up and gave his defense. Uh, in, And we have it recorded in Acts chapter 7. And he moved through the Pentateuch, through the first uh, several chapters of the Bible, and to give his defense. And so we are now in verses uh, 37 through 43. Hear the word of God. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside in their hearts. They turned to Egypt saying to Aaron make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands but God turned away and gave them over to worship uh, uh, the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness O house of Israel you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God Raphan the images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon let us pray our God as we have read your word I pray now that uh, your spirit who searches all things would now search our hearts and apply your word to us help us to examine ourselves uh, in the light of your word And by the power of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an outline on the back of your bulletin uh, that may help you as I move through the sermon. But I want to ask this question first of all. What is the limit of God's patience? Does he ever get so frustrated that he turns his back on his people and his promises? In other words, can we sin so grievously and so repeatedly that we can lose our salvation? Think this through. Can we sin so badly and so much that God says, I have changed my mind in regard to your salvation? No, of course not. God does not change his mind in regard to a person's salvation. 
But that's what it looks like sometimes. The Apostle John addresses this issue because uh, in the early church, there were people who had joined the church, who had made a profession of faith, who had done some good things uh, in the church, and had even held positions of leadership, but these people had fallen away. And people are wondering, is it possible to lose your salvation? And so in 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John says this, they went, out of, they went out from us, but they really did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Jesus addressed the same issue in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Do you hear what both John and Jesus are saying here? John says they fell away because they never really belonged to Jesus. Had they belonged to Jesus, Jesus would have kept them close to himself. Jesus says, in the passage I just quoted from the Sermon on the Mount, he says, even though these people called to him, Lord, 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 and had done many wonderful things in Jesus' name, Jesus said, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. This is Stephen's point to the religious leaders to whom he's preaching. He's saying that the Israelites as a whole, uh, as a nation, never had faith in God. Look at verse 39. He says, Our fathers refused to obey him. The hymn here is Moses. Our fathers refused to obey Moses. And in rejecting Moses, they were rejecting God. So they refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They had physically left Egypt, but their hearts were still there. They rejected Moses specifically. Because Moses was bringing them face to face with the Almighty God. And they didn't like it. They never went back to Egypt. But in their hearts, they were still living there. They longed for it. They pined for Egypt. They wished that they could go back. Why would the Israelites so badly want to go back to Egypt when all that they had known there was slavery? Why would they want to put themselves back underneath the yoke of oppression? If you read the book of Exodus, it's clear why they wanted to go back to Egypt. Because they, in Egypt, they knew where they would sleep at night. They knew what was expected of them. They knew where their next meal would come from. In other words, they did not have to live by faith in order to live with a sense of security. They could live without God. 
Now I want you to hold that thought for a couple of for a few moments. I'm going to return to this idea of living without God and and trying to have security without God. But I want to finish the first point that I'm driving in, and that is that the Israelites never had faith in God. The book of Hebrews makes this point very clearly. At the end of Hebrews 3 it says, Who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not all those that Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying that the Israelites who came out of Egypt did not enter into the promised land but died in the desert because they did not have faith. It was only a small little handful of people who had actually left Egypt that went into to the promised land. Uh, most notably of them that went in was uh, Joshua. But um, it, is, it is an amazing thing to think that out of the million plus people that left Egypt, only a small little handful actually entered into the promised land. And the promised land was a picture of our heavenly promised land. When they died in the desert, God was also saying that they are not entering into his heavenly rest. And the writer of Hebrews makes that point very clear. And not only those who died in the desert were lacking in faith. But if you look at Israel's history, if you look at the entire Old Testament, you see a people who were rebellious, who were disobedient to God, who were almost wholly lacking in faith. The only high points in Israel's history would be when a leader or a king would have faith and then he would surround himself with advisors who had faith in God. And then they would be faithful and lead the people in faithfulness. But as soon as those leaders disappeared, the entire nation would head back to their idolatry and to their rebellion. Israel as a nation basically ran away from God. So I want to return now to the first question that I asked this morning. What is the limit of God's patience? Does he ever get so frustrated that he turns his back on his people and his promises? No, he never gets so frustrated that he turns his back on his people and his promises. God's mercy is everlasting. He does not get so frustrated And he will never get so frustrated with you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ that he will turn his back upon you. In the case of the Israelites, they never, as a nation, as a whole, trusted God. Paul says, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. In other words, amongst the the people of Israel, there was a small remnant who really were Abraham's children by faith. 
Why is this an important point for Stephen to make as he is giving his defense before these religious leaders? His point is that just as the Israelites were devoid or without faith when they left Egypt, the religious leaders to whom he is preaching are also without faith. And so when he says in verse 39 that the Israelites refused to obey God, his point is that the religious leaders are guilty of the same thing. They do not have faith. Why am I spending so much time on this point? The reason why I'm spending so much time on this point is that throughout history, There have been unbelievers in the congregation of God's people. There have always been the tares amongst the weeds. There have always been the weeds sown in among the godly. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So it's not out of bounds. Since Paul calls his people to test themselves, it is not out of bounds for me to call you to test yourselves, to search yourselves, to see whether you are in the faith. Do you trust Jesus Christ? I'm going to return to this question in a few moments. I have been saying that the Israelites had no faith. Actually, that is not entirely accurate. They did exercise faith, but it was not faith in God. Look at verses 41 and 42. I'm sorry, verses 40 and 41. It says, uh, after they, their hearts were still in Egypt, verse 39, they said to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to, the worship, to, to worship the hosts of heaven. All people have faith. These Israelites had faith. Everybody has to believe in something. But remember what I said about the Israelites and why they wanted to return to Egypt? They wanted security. And they wanted to believe that they were going to be safe. This idol of desiring security is just as powerful today as it was back then. People want to be in control so that they can have a sense of security. Trusting God did not give the Israelites this warm sense of security. He was not for them this security blanket that they were looking for. Um, And so the Israelites wanted to have as much power or as much of their life under their own control as they possibly could so that they could go to bed at night free from concern. That's why they they fashioned this idol. And this is a serious issue because the righteous will live by faith. 
is as much an issue today for us as it was for them. We love to have a sense of control. We love to have this sense that everything is working according to our plan. My wife and I used to joke around about a friend of ours and how she was able to not only bend reality to her will, but her family's reality and not only her family's but her friend's reality and so we would we would have this sense that we were we were called up uh, as as her friends into to um, to the reality that she was creating and uh, such was her was was her ability to um, to to bring things underneath her control and I would find myself longing for that ability uh, because it would give me a sense of, well, I'm able to get things done that I want to get done. Or I'm able to, to have this taken care of rather than worrying about it. Notice how Stephen puts it in verse 41. He says in verse 41 that the Israelites were rejoicing in the works of their own hands. See that? That was something that was important to them. This, this uh, golden calf was something that they made with their own hands. Because they made it, they then had a God that they felt like they could control. And this brought them solace in their soul. And all the while, they were rejecting God in their idolatry. I need to say a word or two about the dangers of idolatry because we all struggle with idolatry of some form. I have the things that uh, vie for first place in my own heart. I have those things that I find myself trusting in rather than God. I am tempted to find my own happiness in things outside of God or, or other than God. We all do. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idle producing factory. We produce one after another after another. And we feel like we can fashion these gods and worship them so that we can have some control over them. The problem is they end up controlling us. And what is so dangerous today is that our society has raised these idols to the status of needs. What I mean by this is we say, I have a need for a sense of security. I have a need for this person's approval. I have a need to have this item or that circumstance in my life. And because it's a need, it certainly cannot be wrong. Because I have to have my needs, my basic needs met. And so the danger when we raise our idols to the status of a need, then we can worship these idols with impunity. Or an even scarier notion is that our idolatry is a sickness that cannot be helped. See, idols have the, the, the tendency to make us dysfunctional. We can't live productive lives because our idols have such control over us sometimes. 
our society calls um, this when when idolatry has this kind of grip on us, uh, it calls these addictions. And addictions, our society have has defined as really being uh, forms of medical sickness. And so, because it's a sickness, we're not morally responsible for our actions. Substance abuse has been redefined um, as a sickness. Pornography has been redefined as a sickness. Uh, Anxiety has been redefined as a sickness. And we could go on and on and on when the Bible says that these are actually idolatry, spiritual adultery. Generations of Israelites lived in unrepentant idolatry. And sadly, they died in unrepentant idolatry. And the book of Hebrews says that they did not enter into God's rest. It is very tempting to believe that God would not send a person into hell if they went to church all their lives and basically avoided the more gross sins. But let me be clear. God will not be mocked. Look at verses 42 and 43. Verse 42, But God turned away, and He gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, and you and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Verse 42 says, God gave them over. God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. In other words, God did not sit up in heaven and bite his fingernails and worry about the people who were engaging in idolatry and saying, Oh, I hope that they turn their hearts. No, rather, he confirmed them in their idolatry. They said, We are going to worship an idol. And God said, Don't choke on it. He fed it to them. He gave them over. He turned away and gave them over uh, to their idolatry. The reason why I bring this before us this morning is I want you to come face to face with God this morning. We are preparing to celebrate communion. Examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? Are you a Christian? Are you willing to repent of your idolatry? doesn't mean you have to become perfect. Because you will never become perfect. But is is it your desire to repent of those things that vie for your heart? The good news is, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. In fact, it doesn't matter what you've done earlier today. It doesn't matter what the object of your worship has been. 
The question is, right now, do you trust in Jesus Christ? Right now, is it your heart's cry, God, deliver me from anything and everything that would have first place in my life other than you? Is it your attitude now, God, I repent of my idolatry and flee to Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. He came to save sinners. He did not come to die for sinners who have been reformed and have attained some level of goodness or self-control. I'm not asking you whether you trusted Him in the past. I'm asking you, are you trusting Him right now? I want you to continue to examine yourselves as we move now into the communion service. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I pray the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I pray that You, because You have searched and You know every heart, I pray that You would help us now to search our hearts in light of the gospel of our Lord Jesus who loved us and gave Himself for us so that we might be delivered from the dominion of darkness and into Your marvelous light and into fellowship with You. Father, I'm reminded of John chapter 1. Jesus came into His own and His own did not receive Him. He was the light, but people rejected Him because they loved the darkness. God, I ask that You would help us to come into the light. And I pray for those who do not know Christ, who would be tempted, like... I pray that you would be that you would shine the light of your truth upon them that they would not hide from the light but come to Christ in order that they might have light and have life in him I pray in his name amen